The Premier League season is over, but we still have the FA Cup final, Champions League and Europa League to come, and Bet365 offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, and with Charlie off for a few weeks, I'm joined today by James Moore and special guest, Evening Standard football correspondent and Tottenham expert, Dan Kilpatrick. Dan, really pleased to have you on the show, and you were at Crystal Palace, weren't you, yesterday? Very pleased to be here, and yes, I was at Crystal Palace yesterday. Uh, A very forgettable occasion. Can you take any any positives out of Kane's goal, or was that really it in terms of good news? Yeah, I think that was about it. It was. It just felt very much like getting the job done, and that's what Mourinho said afterwards. He kind of explained that once he knew the Chelsea score, he basically wasn't going to instruct the players to attack, and it was all about pragmatism from there on in, and and just holding on to that point and making sure they got in the Europa League. Delhi would probably get in there if he was a bit fitter, but I think otherwise, perhaps for the first time, we saw. Uh, about as close as we've got to, to Mourinho's kind of favourite team out there, given Ndombele was the only player missing, and we all know he doesn't get in Mourinho's best eleven. I do wonder whether there might almost be a positive and a negative, and this would kind of fly in the face of what, what Dan's just said to an extent. With that uh, Sissoko and Winks uh, axis of terror, perhaps... Uh, maybe will we? Maybe will be the last time we'll see that. I don't know. I don't think it was a performance that would would have convinced him that that was a a long term viable option. And I've mentioned this quite a few times down the months. For me, it doesn't quite it doesn't quite work. And you can really see the merit of a kind of holding midfield player sitting there and uh, allowing the more technically gifted players to shine. And I, I think that we will come onto it a bit later on. But I think that is the key thing for, to be done this summer. I totally agree with James. Win Coco is not a solution for the double pivot. This is what we don't get from Charlie. <laughs> Absurd um, nicknames. I, th- I think Mourinho knows that as well. He, he very publicly said, and I think his first or second press conference, that Sissoko couldn't do that job and couldn't play there. And that's almost a kind of subplot of Mourinho's tenure, really, just kind of realising that uh, he had to perhaps do things at Spurs that he wouldn't have had to at another club just because needs must. Uh, so I totally agree with you. What I meant by saying it's his, his strongest 11 is from the current squad, but I think it will be a priority to get a holding midfielder, someone like Hoiberg, in the summer because it's absolutely necessary and neither Sissoko nor Winks shines in that two together. But if you look at the lockdown period as a whole, I think you can because it's so it's so different from what came before. It's actually been a surprising success, I think, for Spurs. Like, they've had 18 points from nine games, which is more or less... Extrapolate that over 30 games, and that's enough to finish third this season. Just behind Manchester City, you've got 81 points. So, it's gone pretty well. I think the circumstances have suited Mourinho's coaching. He's been able to call on his top players again. Harry Kane's made a big difference. What do you think has gone right for Spurs that has allowed them this kind of slight upturn? I think Spurs obviously managed the lockdown period pretty well by the looks of it. I mean, they've avoided injuries. They went into the Man United game and I think I agree with Mourinho. He said afterwards he thought it was the best game of the of the restart weekend in terms of intensity and kind of levels. Um, and I think they've, they've avoided injuries and they've avoided fatigue in that key three game in a week run against Arsenal, Newcastle and Leicester playing the same 11. Um, seemingly remained fairly sharp. So they managed the, the period obviously quite well. I think Mourinho and his coaching staff deserve credit for for that. Um, and I think what's gone right is, is having his best players and, and also having a plan. You know, For me, the biggest problem with Mourinho pre-lockdown 
And we saw it on occasion post-lockdown, particularly against Bournemouth and Everton, was just this idea that I just did no idea what he was telling the players to do. Uh, it just it didn't look like he had a strategy or Spurs had a, a really coherent tactical approach. But you can't say that of the Arsenal game. You certainly couldn't say that of the Leicester game. So I think they've benefited from from sort of good coming into it with good fitness and also Mourinho having a clear idea of how to beat opponents. The, the Leicester game was probably the best example of that I've seen in terms of Mourinho having a clear tactical plan, which was to sit back, don't give Vardy any space, tempt Leicester up the pitch and get in behind their slow back three that I've seen from Spurs. And it was really like, that was much more of a say, Mourinho masterclass in inverted commas than say the Arsenal game where they won it a set piece at the end and that sort of thing can go either way. So I think there is a lot to be pleased with with that. But it's one question, and we might come back to this later, but... I've heard there was one of the, the co-commentator on Sky on the game yesterday was saying that he worries whether the, that Mourinho style of play, which is basically giving up possession almost to whatever you play against, like I, I can barely think of a game in which Spurs have dominated possession under Jose, that, you know, when there's 62,000 Spurs fans in the stadium or have however many it is, they're not going to accept that, are they, James? Or will they? I mean, it's hard to imagine if the team were playing as they've played over the last nine games, I mean, you know, ignore the results for a second. And I think we're all in agreement that broadly speaking, they've been good. Um, if the team was to play in the way it did against West Ham and Everton, Bournemouth and yesterday against Palace, at games where they've got results that have ultimately proven to be enough, but perhaps not performances that are going to set pulses racing. I think if you get, if you can get a run of performances like that again, even if they do get the results, I, I think... That could become problematic. I don't think you're going to get kind of mass demonstrations against Mourinho if a team are getting results, regardless of the way the team is playing. But uh, it, it's going to be it's going to be something that's going to be a stick that's going to be used to beat him with the second results do turn. And you know the way we know the way things work over the course of a season. Whatever happens next season, there'll be a spell where they have a few bad results within a relatively short period of time. The flip side to that is, I think it's kind of <laughs> it is kind of quite an economical way to play in terms of like. Uh, like energy used, um, which may be quite a big factor next season with the Europa League. Now, I, I think those six group games come. I could be wrong, but I think those six group games come in six successive midweeks, which will obviously be like that. That kind of two months in particular is going to be clearly quite a, a challenging part of the season. So, I, I think I think to answer your question, it probably it probably won't go down particularly well if it continues for much longer. Um, but but needs must, and if the team are getting results, I don't I don't see it being a huge problem. Yeah, I broadly agree with what James said. I think you can't really play that way across a 38-game season. It, it, it just won't fly. Um, I don't think it will work, for one thing, um, for that many games. So I think he has to be a bit more adaptable. I think in Mourinho's defence, what I might say is, we've already mentioned, but I think he realises that he hasn't got the right players in midfield at the moment. And, you know, if we're being very generous, we could, he could, we could say... Look, if he gets in a, a Hoiberg, if he gets in someone who can add a bit more control there, give a platform to Lo Celso and in a dream world and Dombele as well to, to control possession a bit more, then he might be a bit more adaptable and a bit more keen to, to tell his players to, to look for the ball. Um, so it, it may just be a pragmatism thing. And I think he has been very pragmatic uh, in many respects since taking the job. But look, I mean, personally, I... I'm a believer in the, the Tottenham way. I think you know Spurs have been playing in a certain way and they've had a tradition of playing good passing football since the early 50s. And you know that, that counts. That kind of stuff matters. So I think to an extent he has to try and be a little bit more adventurous. But I don't think anyone's going to have any problems if even against Leicester, against City, against Arsenal, against the top six and in the odd away game. You know, I don't think anyone's going to moan if he plays that way and it works. We're offering you the chance to try out The Athletic for free. You can read all our articles on Spurs, including a recent one called What Makes Daniel Levy Tick? Which is a profile that me and Charlie Eccleshare put together of Daniel Levy looking at everything he's done for the club really over the last 20 years since he first joined the board. We've spoken to dozens of people who've known him, who've worked with him. We've looked at the stadium move. We've looked at his time in the transfer market. We've looked at his background. And we've looked at the future of the club, whether or not Levy's going to sell, will he stick around. We really enjoyed working on it. We hope that you would enjoy reading it as well. You can do by going to theathletic.com 
forward slash Spurs pod and take advantage of our 30 day free trial. That's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. This is one of the big questions really for next season. And I don't want to do the next season preview stuff quite yet. It's to what extent is he doing this because it's it's pragmatic, like he's in this unique situation of having a nine-game mini-season to get through and got to climb back up the table. Or is he doing it because that this is now just his fallback, which he always goes to? I mean, you can't say it's pragmatic if it's the only, if it's the only policy you ever choose. Then that's not pragmatism, that's ideology. Um, and I think this is one of the big questions about Mourinho. But another thing I, w- I want to touch on, because Harry Kane has obviously been a huge factor, I think, in Spurs' recent upturn. Got seven goals and nine since lockdown, five goals in the last three games this season. Dan, do you feel like he's getting closer to his best? Yeah, I really do think he's getting closer to his best. Uh, I think even against Palace in, in what was a pretty awful game where he didn't get a lot of action, he was still doing Kane things pretty regularly. You know, he was still holding up the ball really well. He was still spreading the play when he got a chance to. And I think in the last few games, we've seen him return to somewhere near his peak for me. And he may have lost a yard of pace. He may not be quite as explosive as he was, but he's a different player and in, in, he's a better player in, in other aspects of his game. I know you've written about this um, recently, Jack, so you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I think, I think he's been a, a really big positive and, to go back to the Arsenal game, actually, uh, I think, yes, it, it was won by a, a set piece, but what Mourinho did quite well in that game is I think he realised that with an isolated Kane, Spurs just don't play. There's nothing going forward when Kane's kind of isolated and, and putting Son close to him against Arsenal was was a good move. And then suddenly Spurs just looked so much better uh, going forward when Kane could be more involved and I think that's really key. If, if Mourinho is to play in this way we've just talked about, the most important thing is not leaving Kane isolated because Spurs just look like half the team uh, when he's not on the ball. It's interesting you mentioned that, Dan, because I think that, that was a big part of the, the problem uh, yesterday is that in the early stages of the game where they, they went looking for the goal and Nacelso was pushing far further forward and, and the two wide players were kind of coming inside that much more and Kane was like massively involved, scored the goal things look to be going well. But then as, from what we gather, news of this news of a Chelsea score filtered through and it became evident that a draw was going to be enough, then the, the, kind of, the whole team retreated and then he did become that much more isolated, which, as you say, has kind of been... It's kind of seemed like an obvious problem for a few years. I mean, you know, his, his best season probably would have been, you'd say, 16, 17, 17, 18, when, when Deli Alley was playing right up front of him, more or less, for the most part. And it kind of feels a bit strange to me that successive managers now have kind of learnt this lesson and then almost disregarded it. I mean, I, I feel like if Spurs had been a bit more attack-minded yesterday, they could have probably won that game quite easily. But, you know, I, and I know we, we talk about pragmatism and the draw was enough, fine. But it does seem to me like it, it, on another day in another match, that, that could have really come back to bite you on the ass. I mean, if, if, if you know, if Wolves scored two goals in injury time, then that's just a complete nightmare for Spurs, isn't it? I mean, that could have happened, who knows? Yeah, or, or, if that's, or if that Dan header goes in toward the end. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that, it, it, it was a very risky tactic, but I think Mourinho just didn't want to win that game, that he was quite happy with the point. And yeah, it could have cost Spurs. And do you think the defence is improving? They only conceded three goals in the last six games, and the, the goals they have conceded, there was the Lacazette brilliant brilliant hit there was the Matt Ritchie hit and then there was yesterday which is a bit ugly and it's because I think Aurier and Davis both managed to slip over from defending that corner so the goals they conceded were a tiny bit random I think if I was being generous Dan so do you feel like do you feel like the defense is finally moving in in that kind of Mourinho direction yeah I think it definitely is and I think post lockdown Sheffield United aside which does seem like a bit of an anomaly the kind of standout game when you look back now that game aside, the defence has, has been pretty good. Uh, I think Sanchez was a little bit unlucky to be dropped yesterday. I think Mourinho's got a problem there because I think Alderweireld and Dyer are probably better players individually, but I feel like maybe Alderweireld and Sanchez is a better partnership. It's just they just seem to work slightly better together. Sanchez has got that extra yard of pace, um, so that that'll be interesting to see ahead of next season. Um, but yeah, I mean, Mourinho always promised that he could fix the defence. And it was looking like a, a kind of empty promise 
before the lockdown. And I think during that period and then the kind of mini pre-season of socially distanced training, it's, it's something that, that Spurs obviously really worked on closely and it has paid dividends because it, it was really dreadful at times um, in, in kind of spring and winter. To me, that could be that could be absolutely massive when we get to the transfer window because, I mean, I think if you had asked me from sort of February onwards through to, you know, that, that, that Sheffield United game, basically, I would have said Spurs need one to bring in one centre-back, maybe even two. And you look at it now and you kind of think, well, actually, I mean, in an ideal world, you probably would want to bring someone else in, but I, I don't think that's as essential as it, as it looked a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I mean again... You know, we mentioned this last week. You don't want to kind of, you don't want to kind of get carried away with positive results any more than you want to get carried away with negative results. But you can kind of see a way that 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 defence could, or at least that central defence could work. And, and you know, there, there are two partnerships there, and I, I agree with Dan. I think as a unit, they look slightly stronger with Sanchez purely because he has that kind of power of, of recovery that Dyer doesn't really have. But the before the the, the improvements from Alderweireld who. I mean, he wasn't terrible in the first few months of the season, but he really wasn't great. And we mentioned Lloris last week as well, Jack. That has felt like a bigger thing to me than Kane's improvement over the last few weeks. The Kane thing, I think, most people saw coming. I think if you listen back to the podcast from before the restart, I think I said, and don't quote me on this because I didn't actually listen back to it, but I think I said he'd, he'd start slowly and score seven or eight goals. Now, that is exactly what happened. Wow, you're a genius. <laughs> I know, thank you. But the, yeah, I... I It'll be interesting to see whether or not that, that whether or not centre back is like a big priority, and and I know we understand that clearly your midfielder will be will be something they're looking to do, and possibly a right back as well. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was something I wanted to do there. But I, I just don't think it's anywhere near as integral as it may otherwise have been. This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below the belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. And the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom while in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off at manscaped.com with the code EPL20. Happy shaving! I think I feel that in the same way that last season will always be the season where Spurs opened the new stadium and got to the Champions League final, this season, at least on the pitch, will always be the season where Daniel Levy sacked Mauricio Pochettino and appointed Jose Mourinho. Like Long into the future, that is what people will always remember this season for. And I think it's one of the biggest single decisions that Daniel Levy has made in his time at Tottenham. And for the, f- for the first part of the Mourinho era... I always said that I don't I think it's too early and unfair to judge Mourinho on results and you know that kind of carries the implication that I thought results would be bad but because he had a tough job I didn't think he should get too hammered for it but now that Mourinho's had 26 league games he's taken I think 1.73 points per game under across that time uh, Spurs in the first 12 games of the season under Pochettino were on 1.16 points per game so it's obviously a really big improvement and it's kind of brought me back to the question, which I've been I think about all the time, Dan. Was it the right decision? First of all, I, I agree with you. It's it's been really difficult to work out how well Mourinho's done in the sense, and I think a lot of his tenure has kind of boiled down to this question of how broken the squad was when he inherited it, and it it goes back to what Pochettino used to always say about perception and reality. Really, I guess I guess. The perception from the outside at the start of the season was that Spurs still had a really promising, talented young squad that had just reached the Champions League final and was on the up. But the reality for Pochettino day to day was that it was a stale squad that was aging and needed a massive overhaul. And I think Mourinho's kind of been battling um, against, the, against these two different perceptions, really. Um, and it's not clear whether 
he's got great players or, or whether he's a busted flush. And it's, it's just been really hard to get a feel for, for how what par is for Tottenham anymore, um, which I, I think what you were getting at there. Um, I mean, I think, to answer your question, honestly, I think Pochettino deserved... Pochettino had been saying for two years that he was the squad needed a refresh and that it was going to go stale. So I think when someone predicts something like that, they deserve a chance to be the one to turn it around. So that's how I'll always feel about it. So from that respect, I would say it wasn't the right decision. But I think I would also say, I don't think Pochettino would have done as well this season as Mourinho has done. I'm not sure Spurs would have gotten the top six. So in that respect, from a kind of short-termist point of view, the decision has worked. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, you know, as painful as it was to see Pochettino leave, and Dan is right, you know, he flagged that this, this squad rebuild was needed. And I think we all kind of acknowledged that at the time, but I don't think we, I don't think we appreciated one, how, how serious he was about it and two, how severe it would be. And he talked about, you know, how painful it would be. Um, and I think we were maybe all a little bit naive about, about exactly what it would entail. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, in an ideal world, you would want him to be the guy who's in charge of that. And it would have happened two years ago rather than now. But I mean, I think I think in the circumstances, uh, with all that having unfolded, I think it was it was right for him to go in that moment, um, as bad as that was. Whether or not Mourinho will prove to be the right man in the longer term, I still kind of say it's difficult to say. But I, th- I mean, in the short term, I mean, certainly up to this point, I think he's done well, and I think there are signs that for next season, he he could do a really good job. I mean, he's kind of proven himself to to generally be a really good manager in the short term. I think that's been the case everywhere he's been, even if it has subsequently gone sour. So, I mean, I think there's great cause for optimism for next season, whether or not that's something that's going to hold much water two or three years down the line, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I, I, cer- I certainly would you know, give him a lot of credit for the work he's done, particularly in the last few weeks, because, I mean, there are several points over the last few months where I really wouldn't have seen Spurs finishing sixth. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it was quite obvious from the start of the season, or maybe from about September, that things were actually quite a lot worse internally at Spurs than we thought, and that the Champions League run did paper over a lot of the cracks. And I think Spurs, I think inside the club, they knew from basically halfway through last season that things were a mess. Now, of course, I don't blame Pochettino for that. And in fact, I agree with what Dan said, that Pochettino did did deserve a rebuild. And he, frankly, that rebuild should have started back in 2017 rather than being delayed up and all the way up until 2019. But like football isn't about fairness and justice. And that's why I think it was probably the right decision to get rid of Pochettino, even though the situation wasn't his fault. And even in that that interview that Pochettino did that we that we published back in in late May he admitted that it was correct that he should have left like he knew it was time for him to go so i don't i don't especially begrudge daniel levy deciding to get rid of pochettino whether it should be mourinho or not well i haven't been a huge fan of mourinho for a few years but i accept that if you want if you want someone to provide you a kind of short term boost in results and to keep the club on the map in a global sense and also a sufficiently big character to like be able to step into the shoes of the most popular manager in the club's modern history, then he does at least tick those boxes. And there's a small part of me that thinks, well, you know, they should have gone for a rebuild under like a Hasselhüttl or someone. But you don't know how Hasselhüttl would adjust to like the massive media profile that being Spurs manager now is. And you also don't know whether fans would have really accepted or been able to tolerate replacing Pochettino with another Saints manager. So I don't know. I, I have very mixed feelings about it. Obviously, Mourinho would have been appointed with a view to winning something, you know, getting the team over the line in a way that Pochettino couldn't do, even though he, you know, produced some fantastic performance in the Premier League, reached the League Cup final, Champions League final. Dan, how would you assess Spurs' prospects of winning something next year? I think Spurs have got a pretty good chance of winning something next year. I mean, they've got most of the ingredients in place. They've got the stadium, they've got the manager, they've got good enough players to win any one-off match. So I think they've got a very good chance. And it was interesting uh, speaking to Lucas Moura after the Palace game. I literally got a couple of minutes with him on the phone and asked him if they had the consistency over the league season to return to the Champions League via top four finish last season. And this was after Mourinho had said again in his post-match press conference that their form since lockdown had been top three or four form and Lucas said yes that's important but the priority is 
to win a trophy. So you, know, you wonder if the, the message from inside the club is very much, yes, of course, we're going to try and finish in the top four, but the Europa League's there for us and that brings Champions League qualification and the League Cup and FA Cup are there for us. And that would constitute quite a serious departure from uh, the rhetoric of, of Pochettino and the aims of Pochettino, who was always very clear that there were only two trophies worth winning, which were the Premier League and Champions League. So I think Spurs have got a good chance uh, and I think they will you know, really go for it next year. And you, you know, If James is right about that Europa League congestion over the course of six weeks, then, then you might even see some sort of stronger Europa League teams than, than in the Premier League, which would be a real um, change from the last few years for Tottenham. Yeah, well, remember in Mourinho's first season at, Man- at Manchester United, um, the team won the, uh, they won the League Cup and then in the sort of back end of the season, they were hanging around fifth in the table and also in the Europa League. And Mourinho, as far as I can remember, he basically went all in on the Europa League. You know, picked all his best teams in the in Europe. The Premier League form fell away. They finished sixth, but then they they beat Ajax in the Europa League final and then got got into the following season's Champions League that way. So Mourinho does have form for managing that kind of process and for putting his eggs in that particular basket. Um, James, is that what you want to see? You want to all out for a trophy or even at the cost of the Premier League? Yeah, I think so. The one thing I'd say is I think if, if you're gonna if you're gonna go deep in the Europa League, you need to have the squad because you can't you can't complete, completely disregard the Premier League, can you? I mean that, that situation you talk about was slightly different because it was at you know, quote unquote the business end of the season where they had, you know, they knew they weren't gonna win the Premier League and it was kind of it was kind of a gamble between finishing fourth and risking, you know, not playing a full-strength team in Europa League or flipping it round and going all in in Europa League and maybe finishing fifth or sixth. It wasn't, the gamble wasn't quite as big as it seemed at the start of the season. Um, so, yeah, that, that that group stage period, I think, will be the key period. Um, you know, Spurs will be top seeds in the competition and there's you know, a decent chance they'll end up with a group of, um, just trying to work out how to put this diplomatically. Uh, actually, no, I'll just say bad teams. Or certainly inferior teams, and they should be able to get through. But I just don't think they've got quite the, or at the moment, have quite the depth to do what they did. Maybe in the red nap times where they'd kind of flip things around, and players like Cranshaw would play like a dozen Europa League games in a season or whatever. I just don't see that there's the squad is built in quite the same way now. I guess partly down to Pochettino's kind of taste for for a smaller squad, which which made sense in line with that approach that you mentioned of only really being interested in the two trophies. So I do wonder whether there might be a bit of sort of squad ballast brought in for want of a, a better phrase, you know, players who perhaps are going to be there on a the short term and only really there to play in the Europa League next season, maybe. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, I think I think if you if you were asking me would I prefer Spurs to finish sort of 6th, 7th, 8th and win the Europa League or finish 2nd again and qualify for the Champions League through the league and kind of come close-ish in the league, one, I know which of those two things I think is more likely. And two, I, I mean, I would far rather win the trophy. I'm feeling quite good about Spurs' prospects of winning a trophy now. I mean, it's incredibly reactive because three weeks ago after Sheffield United, I think we all thought, God, this is this is broken forever. Like, there's no way they'll ever be good again. And now I'm thinking, yeah, I can kind of... M- Mourinho is very good at these kind of one-off games and two-legged games and knockout football. And he's also got a very experienced squad who obviously have or plenty of them have reached a Champions League final themselves and have quite a lot of experience. Like it's not, you know, it's not a young team anymore. So maybe next year that will change. Maybe next year, maybe next year they will go on a great run and win something. And the other thing I think about next season is that I just don't think the bar is that high for the Champions League football. Like 66 points for Chelsea and Manchester United is really, really low. And I know that, you know, Chelsea are going to have Ziyech and Vernon next year and maybe Havertz as well. But that doesn't necessarily then mean they'll be good. Like, they still don't really have a defence. I think they're still they're still quite in- inconsistent, Chelsea. And then United will probably improve as well. But again, I don't especially... I don't... I'd be surprised if I think, if I think they're going to be like an 80 or 90 point team next year. Like, ultimately, I just think Mourinho is a better manager than Solskjaer or Lampard. So I do think... Spurs Spurs shouldn't get too pessimistic yet. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part 
of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. So I know that so far we've been quite, we've been slightly negative on this podcast, which we do get criticised for sometimes. So I just want to try and lighten things up a bit by talking about what have been our favourite memories or moments of the season and in terms of like actually good in terms of things that are actually good as opposed to just dramatic I think the best Spurs game of the season I can remember is probably the Leicester 3-0 was good but it's obviously very strange with no one there the beating City 2-0 at home was I think quite a positive result wasn't it like the it seemed like the Mourinho plan went the way it should have done Bergwijn scored that great goal and it's always exciting seeing a new player score a goal like that Dan am I missing anything? No, I mean, I think you're right in terms of, you know, it felt like there was an incredible percentage of luck that contributed to the City win. But still, I agree, it was a, it was a good moment. And it, I'm not really counting anything post-lockdown because it all felt so surreal with supporters. It didn't quite feel as though it really happened. I mean, I think in terms of individual moments, there's two that stand out for me. And there's Son's goal against Burnley um, and also contradicting what I just said. Bergwijn's goal against Manchester United, I think just because it was the, the first goal I'd seen in the restart conditions. Um, and it was a great goal as well. And it, it kind of brought the whole thing to life, really, made it all real. You kind of remembered that players were still allowed to beat a couple of men and, and, and score a great individual goal, um, even though everything else was so bizarre. And then Son's goal, which was obviously named match of the day's goal of the season last night, was was just ridiculous. And uh, and sublime and it was a great thing to witness and although Burnley were beyond dreadful that day that that's still definitely Mourinho's biggest win I think and and still probably one of the best moments as well because they just took apart Burnley uh, at the new stadium so um, yeah I'd I, I pick those two moments. Uh, I mean that Burnley game like with and Dan is right and they, they were terrible that day but I mean with the benefit of hindsight and looking at their defensive record this season and, and like the fact that they've ended up finishing ninth I think I mean actually it's a ludicrous result really for a season where you know you could hardly say Spurs have played their best attacking football I think to my mind and I'll put this out there to be corrected if I'm wrong but I, I reckon the only before like kind of like kind of team performance in the kind of mould of the kind of great performances we've seen over the last four or five years was probably the Palace game quite early in the season, the Palace home game in September. They won 4-0 and scored a couple of really nice kind of team goals. I'm thinking of one where Aurier crossed for Son to volley in at the far post. And and that just felt like in that moment, it kind of seemed like everything was going to be okay. They'd had that home defeat to Newcastle and it, and it felt like a bit of an anomaly at that stage. Um, and then the next week they had this kind of infamous game at Leicester that we talked about last week, Zach, with uh, the VAR, the very marginal VAR call against uh, Aurier, who thought he had put Spurs 2-0 up. And again, I kind of can't help but wonder how different the whole season may have been had Spurs got that second goal. So I can only imagine they would have won that game. And, and maybe Spurs and Leicester's seasons would have been completely different had that had that had that gone that way. Yeah, I'm just I was just looking back on soccer base, the fixtures there about which games I have particularly strong memories of. And ultimately, I think the strongest memories that I have of this season, this you know, I don't want things to head in a negative direction again, but in terms of like stuff I remember for a long time, it's actually it's the bad end of the Pochettino era that stands out to me more than any of the Mourinho stuff. The Colchester game where they lost on penalties and Pochettino said afterwards in the press conference in this tiny little room in, uh, in the Colchester Stadium that there were too many different agendas around the club. Uh, after he'd, you know, basically throwing the players under the bus for the start of the season, how bad things were. That was a real kind of wow moment, like God. And I think that was probably the moment when I thought, actually, this is really bad. And then a few weeks after, the 7-2 at home to Bayern, which was in like quite a good game. And actually Spurs played pretty well in the first half. And then to completely collapse like they did in the second half and concede all those goals... That was another jolting moment. 
Uh, and actually, the Brighton game, which I wasn't at, but that was I watched it on TV in the Loftus Road press room. That was like a kind of moment of realization of like, God, this is actually like irredeemably broken. And then I'll also I will always remember just that those the few days of sort of turn turnaround in in November when Pochino actually got sacked because it was during the international break. So I'd been covering England and they played in Kosovo and won four 0 in Pristina. And that was when the first stories came out. I think it was Matt Law at the Daily Telegraph who first had the stories about the the crisis talks at Spurs. And so I was very aware of it, but I um, I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to go. And then I flew back from um, from Pristina to London, I think two days, a day or two after the game. And obviously the, the big story in England at this point had been uh, Prince Andrew's Newsnight interview with Emily Maitlis. And everyone was tweeting about it in England and messaging me about it, but because I was in Kosovo, I hadn't seen it. And I got home and thought, right, now I'm going to, I'm, I'm quite tired. I've been away on England duty for about a week, it felt like. I, I want to finally, you know, turn off my phone or not look at my phone and my laptop for a bit and settle down and watch the Prince Andrew interview. And I'd literally just stuck it on when I got a call from up from uh, one of the editors saying, Jack, have you checked your phone? Uh, no, why? Pochettino's been sacked. And then the next, uh, I thought, wow, what? that was an amazing way to kind of find out. And then the next few days, obviously very, very frantic. And then being at that first game at West Ham, where they won 3-2 and the away end sang Jose Mourinho, which you haven't heard that much of, obviously, even even before lockdown, that felt like a really big moment as well, didn't it? Because it was, you know, the start of the new era. And they actually played pretty well that day, I think, against West Ham. Yeah, I, I was on holiday in Greece, actually, when Pochettino was sacked. So it was a bit of a nightmare. I'd also been in Kosovo. And I went straight from Kosovo down to Greece uh, and was having a very, very nice dinner in Athens. Um, had had a few beers, checked my phone, and it. There, I think there had been some leaks shortly before Spurs announced it. So I, I was kind of prepared for it to come and then ended up um, working pretty much all through the night. I said I'd do a piece of the paper on, on kind of Pochettino's reign. Uh, and I was still writing it on my phone uh, on a ferry uh, to a Greek island, to Idra, the next morning. So I remember that very clearly. And I watched the West Ham game kind of by myself in a, in a bar on this island. But yeah, it, it was it was all very surreal. And, and the timing of it, it felt strange because you think if Levy was going to sack him, he would have done it immediately after the Sheffield United game to give a new manager kind of the whole international break to, to settle in. So it was all... Slightly unexpected and, and, again, a little bit of a surreal feel to it. Yeah, that, that was kind of how I felt about it as well. That You know, there was a lot of talk in the build-up to that Sheffield United game that, that Pochettino really needed a win. And it came after that Everton game, which was horrible for loads of reasons. I mean, obviously, the Gomez injury, which overshadowed the whole thing, and it was just just a terrible, depressing Sunday afternoon. Um, and Sheffield United were in good form, and it kind of felt like it was, it was an opportunity for Spurs to beat a decent team and to kind of exert their authority over them and, and look like they're moving forward. Uh, and I think they went in front and then got, Sheffield uh, uh, United had a goal, a goal stupidly disallowed by VAR and then scored a, an equaliser. And, and, you know, a draw against Sheffield United, looking back now through the lens of the entire season, doesn't look terrible. But I mean, Spurs were very fortunate to get that point that day. And I remember leaving the ground thinking, this feels like the kind of, this felt like a manager's last game. You know, you kind of had that instinct sometimes. I actually had that three times, I think, early in the season. I remember walking away from that Southampton game. Do you remember the one where Aurier gets sent off early? And Spurs actually played really well, um, at, well like with 10 men for an hour and won the game against a decent Southampton team. But it, it really had that kind of feel of, den- of delaying the inevitable. There was just something about it that just didn't feel kind of satisfying, it, even though Spurs had played well. But yeah, I mean, as Dan says, I mean, you would have expected the manager to go if he was going to go in an international break for it to happen straight away. So I think, given it didn't happen in the first couple of days, I think people were kind of, had kind of grown to accept that he was going to stay a bit longer. And then suddenly you get this news breaking, I think, on the Wednesday night of the second week of the break. And it just was, I mean, they somehow managed to make this entirely predictable thing um, the last thing you expected, which was, uh, I suppose, quite uniquely Spurs. I think another story of the season has been Spurs finally resolving in various different ways the kind of knot of contract issues that's really hung over them for the last year or two. Like we, uh, Dyer, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, Eriksson, and I suppose 
Danny Rose as well, were all coming to the end of their Tottenham contracts. None of them were signing a new one. I think it had, I think it had badly affected the squad and the the sense of unity and the sense of togetherness that had been such a big engine of of the kind of peak Pochettino years. But it's all sorted now. Like Ericsson's gone to Inter for seventeen million, which is nowhere near nowhere near enough. But I suppose that's the market. We now know that Vertonghen's gone. Uh, Dyer and Alderweireld have signed big new contracts, and they're going to be big players of the, of the Mourinho era. And we imagine that Rose, I think, will probably join Newcastle permanently later in the summer. Uh, Dan, how how much of a relief is it for Tottenham finally to have all that stuff put to bed? It is a relief, yeah. And you've cruelly overlooked Michel Vorm in that introduction, which is um, very, very unfair. Um, the big man also leaves um, today. But I think, yeah, it's it's... It's it's been hanging over the club for a while, and you you could sort of see there were elements not of desperation, but I think when they gave Sissoko the new long term contract, which felt slightly random at the time, um, the length of it anyway, particularly given his age, I think you could see in in that move that there was a real desire for Spurs to not let this get out of control and not let any other players kind of creep um, their deals down. Um, so I think it, it could have gone better, it could have gone worse. You've also got to include Dembele in that. But there was basically a faction of, of guys, Ericsson, Vertonghen, Alderweireld, Dembele, uh, who realised that they could get a lot of leverage if they ran down their deals. And you know, while the likes of Kane, not to say it was the wrong decision, continued to, to sign you know, fairly regular long-term contracts, um, so it could have gone much better. I mean, they they probably sold Ericsson and Dembele at the, the wrong times, I think. Um, they probably gave Alderweireld and Sissoko longer deals than they wanted to. Uh, they could have probably got some money for Vertonghen last summer. He hasn't exactly played a, a big part this season. Um, but as you said, you know, the, the key thing is they resolved it and, and it could have been much worse. So I think Harry Kane's still got four years left on his deal. So... Unless I'm missing someone, I don't think Spurs are going to be in a situation like this again for a while, are they? I think the interesting one might be Lloris, because he's on record saying his future was tied to Pochettino's. That was a while ago now. He's also on record saying he'd quite like to play in MLS. I think he's actually been really very good under Mourinho, uh, particularly since the restart. and saved Spurs some points, not least in the Leicester game. Uh, so he'll be an interesting one. I need to double-check when his contract is up, but I think he'll have two years left after this season. So we'll be entering that territory again with, with the club captain toward the end of next year, I think. Um, but yeah, other than that, there, there aren't too many others. I think Aurier is another one. He's got two years left from now. I think he will push for a move in the summer because he, he always pushes for a move in the summer. Um, and that again, that might be a decision that, that Spurs are a bit more proactive with taking this time uh, given what's happened elsewhere. Harry's sponsors The View from the Lane, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who are sick and tired of overpriced razors. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. As a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash lane right now. That's harrys.com forward slash lane. And also, as we look back at the season, um, we shouldn't forget that Spurs did spend a fair bit of money last year. Uh, which made it different from the year before. Um, I've Lacelso obviously a hit, and Dombele probably have to say a miss. Sessegnon probably too early to tell; hasn't really played much. James, how would you assess the, assess the three of them? You uh, you forgot Clark as well, didn't you? Oh God, yeah, I had to forget I mean, Clark. No, I mean, we haven't got another hour to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, we have spent many hours talking about Ndombele over the course of this season. Um, and, and clearly, for one reason or another, that just hasn't hasn't worked. I don't really envisage that that changing massively. I mean, I, I, you know, I think I think Dan and I both mentioned earlier the possibility of a, a kind of midfield, a defensive midfield player coming in and allowing 
other players to flourish, but I just don't see that Mourinho is going to suddenly decide that he wants Ndombele to be one of those. So given there isn't, a, um, and as we mentioned before, not a massively deep squad, there aren't fringe players they can sell for decent money, you would think it would be logical for him to be a player that they might move on. So there isn't really a world in which you can say that, that that's been a transfer that's, that's worked. Lacelso, I, I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago and was surprised that quite so many people agreed. I don't, I don't think he's been quite quite as good as people may have made out since um, since the restart. I mean, he, he really came into his own in the kind of period just before when everyone, more or less everyone else was playing badly. But I've, I've not been massively impressed by him in the last few weeks. He's done fine. He's done well. You know, I think he's really well to, to create that Kane goal on Sunday. But he's been a bit hot and cold for me. So, I mean, you know, I, I, he's done well. But I don't, I don't think I'd say that's been a, a roaring success either. I mean, certainly nowhere near as bad. With Lacelso, he has been pretty much playing through the pain for, since the restart. And Mourinho was saying yeah, okay, true. he was unable to get this groin treatment during lockdown. He, and he rather dramatically called him a, a victim of the, the shutdown. Um, so I think I, I have sympathy for him there. And I still think he's done okay. And I just think that there was a period for pretty much two months, probably, before the, the season was suspended, where... He was by far and away just the only good thing about Spurs almost every single week. And I just found myself writing in my sort of post-match five-point analysis this every week it was, well, the Celso was head and shoulders above everyone again. So I think he has been a, a, a real success, uh, particularly given all the usual caveats about first season in, in England, doesn't really speak the language, change of manager, team not really performing. I think given all the circumstances, he's done incredibly well. And now you really wouldn't look beyond him as one of the first two or three names on the team sheet, I think. So I would put him down as a big tick. Would he be our player of the season? He's probably just about my player of the season. Although I can't really think of that many obviously good contenders. I suppose Son and Kane have both scored a few goals when they've been fit. Uh, but I'd probably just go for Lacelso. Is that right? I would probably go for Kane. I mean, as ever with these things, I think it's all about kind of when the vote happens. And if I was voting today, I would probably go Kane because I think he's been very good since the restart. His numbers are, are pretty impressive throughout the season, um, particularly given the injury. Uh, and I think, you know, as James rightly says, the Celso, for whatever reason, probably due to injury, just hasn't hit the same heights since the league restarted. I think Son's had a really strange season with those kind of two red cards and hot spells, cold spells, broken arm. I just think he's been a bit too inconsistent for me, Son. And I think the Palace game was not atypical of his season, really. He just, he's been anonymous too many times. So I think I would just about give it to Kane. Yeah, it is, it is tricky. I mean, I, 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 I really not like knocking Lo Celso. I mean, in the kind of early, in the early part of this year, he was the only thing that, uh, Made me happy watching Tottenham. The rest of it was pretty, uh, pretty terrible. Beyond the three players that, you, that have just been mentioned, there, I'm really not sure um, who else you could pick. And, and my instinct would be to kind of not not lean too heavily on these last nine games, but it is almost a quarter of the season, right? So I mean, you know, it's a substantial chunk. Um, it's a factor in that Lasalso didn't play much in the first half of the season, really. And as Dan was saying, Son's kind of been in and out of form and the team. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go with Kane purely on the basis of what he's done in the last few weeks, which I think has um, sort of dragged the team over the line in a sense and also probably given more cause for optimism next season. Yeah, and we're, we're just running out of time now, but before we go, I just want to say a few words about Jan Vertonghen. Uh, obviously, Vertonghen has now played his last game for Tottenham and has announced that he's leaving the club. Uh, and... I just want to say how what a legend I think Vertonghen is. Like he's um, when he came in in his first few years, there were plenty of questions about him. I remember uh, Tim Sherwood questioning whether or not he really rated him as a defender. He even I think fell out of Pochettino at the start of Pochettino's tenure, and then he turned himself into one of the best and most consistent defenders that Spurs Spurs have had in the last few decades. He was integral, really, to the way they played under Pochettino. Like so aggressive and high up the pitch, he was quite uh, always quite like watching him play because he's so smooth on the ball, uh, and also just 
seemed to be a really nice guy, like very well settled in London, always good with the media, a good talker, even after Spurs lost. And, you know, I don't disagree with the decision for him to go because I'm sure he might well want a new challenge. Uh, but I I do think he's like one of the best and most, most likable players that Spurs have had, uh, certainly since I've been covering them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. I think he's he's always felt like a great fit from Spurs from day one. He just seems like a Spurs kind of player to me. Um, whether that's to do with his style, you know, he's obviously great on the ball. Um, like to bring it out of defence. I think he's been very consistent and and very solid and and one of the best defenders in the Premier League over the last eight years. I mean, he's got in the PFA Team of the Year twice. It feels like it could have been, you know, once or twice more, uh, given his consistency under Pochettino, but he was a bit unlucky with, with injuries. He tended to get a kind of major one uh, a couple of seasons in a row. Um, and yeah, and as you said, just a, a kind of thoughtful, intelligent, um, cultured bloke uh, who seemed to be really good to have around the club and, and the, the, the key man behind the Uno craze, I, I understand. A big board game fan, just a thoroughly decent bloke all round. I think it really does feel like a lifetime ago that that he he came into the club, 2012-13, and that was one of those two seasons that Dan just mentioned that he was in the PFA Team of the Year. He feels like almost like he was a totally different player back then. He scored more goals in that season in the Premier League than he did in the rest of his time with Spurs. And I'd kind of forgotten until I was looking at the numbers earlier today that he went like kind of four or five years without a Premier League goal and it had kind of become a bit of a meme among Spurs fans that he hadn't scored a goal. And ironically, the goal he scored at Wolves this season, the winning goal in the 90th minute at Molyneux, is kind of, you could kind of look at it and say that's the goal that's meant Spurs have finished sixth instead of seventh and could, if if a terrible thing happens next weekend and Arsenal win the FA Cup, it could be the goal that puts Spurs into Europe. So although he hasn't had a vintage season by his standards, he, he has definitely made a big contribution still. Someone on Twitter pointed something out, which was quite nice, which is that he came in to essentially replace Ledley King in 2012 when King retired. And now as Patongan leaves, King is kind of returning to a prominent role at the club by joining Mourinho's coaching staff next season. Yeah, that's really nice, isn't it? Um, look, that's all we've got time for this week on the podcast. Uh, thanks very much to listeners, but don't worry, we will be back next week with another podcast. And thank you very much, Dan. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. Uh, so it's great to have you on. And I'm sure we'll tap your expertise again at some point in the future. But otherwise, Spurs fans will be back next week. Mm-hmm.